We're starting on chapter 32 this week. Last week, Jacob escaped being annihilated by Laban only because God intervened. Um, And no sooner does Laban leave than Jacob is confronted by angels. This is a picture of what angels might actually look like if we saw some nowadays. Really, I'm trying to help you stop thinking of angels in the mythological way we've been taught. Angels seem to be a transition marker in the Jacob and Esau narrative. Um, Remember that Jacob saw angels going up and down a ladder to heaven as he fled from Esau to Haran originally. Well, now he sees angels as he's returning from Haran to face Esau again. And I kind of wonder if this is God's way of reminding him that God promised to bring him back here safely, because it doesn't say anything about what the, the, the angels say or do or anything. They just appear here in the story. Now, as we catch up with Jacob here, he has come down um, from Haran on what's called the King's Highway, and it runs about like this. And he's gotten about this far to a town named Gilead. Now, if you recall, Esau lives down in this area, right down here. So he's not very far at all from where Jacob is, and Jacob is quite worried. And in fact, the road that Jacob's on actually extends all the way down to where Esau is. So he's right in the bullseye. Jacob is right on, he's on like the freeway. And Jacob figures he needs to scout out Esau's frame of mind. So he sends messengers ahead to tell Esau he's coming with a large household, but that he's no threat. Well, it's not long before the messengers come running back to tell Jacob that as soon as Esau heard this news, he gathered up 400 fighting men and started marching north. This is not good at all. Jacob decides to split his household into two pieces so that if Esau attacks one, the other will have a chance to escape. Then he prays and reminds God of his promise to protect and prosper him like just in case God forgot or isn't paying attention. What I do find lovely in his prayer is that he says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown me, Lord. Now that doesn't sound to me like the Jacob who started on this journey. It sounds to me like he might have changed while he was in Haran. After he prays, he pulls five huge gifts out from his various herds, and he puts each herd under the care of a different slave and sends them out one at a time, spacing them out so they won't all arrive at once. And he tells the slaves, when you meet Esau and he demands to know who you are and what all this livestock is for, tell him they're a gift to him from his servant Jacob. Jacob then spends the evening ferrying the rest of his people and possessions and herds south across the Jabbok River until everyone has crossed except him. Exhausted, he lies down for what could easily be his last night on earth. But he gets no rest that night. A man, a man that Jacob eventually realizes is the angel of God, wrestles with him all night long. And while Jacob does not let, God doesn't let Jacob overpower him and neither does God overpower Jacob. God's just there, present with Jacob, letting him wrestle it all out. 
This reminds me of when I was a small child and harbored immense anger towards my mother. Realizing this, she would let me pound as hard as I could on her back and call it a back rub. When both of us knew, it was just so I could vent some of the deep anger I felt. Jacob is doing exactly this, I think. And finally, God says, it's time to stop struggling. Now tell me your name. And Jacob says, my name is Jacob, the deceiver. And God says, you will not be named the deceiver anymore. Your name is Israel now. My Bible footnotes say that Israel means he struggles with God. But Robert Alter observes that when a Hebrew name ends with L, the name for God, it usually means God is the actor, the subject of the verb or the phrase or whatever it is, not the object being done to. For example, Bethel, Beit El, means God's house. Penuel, which is what Jacob will name this place, means God's face. Israel is just such a word. So we need to switch these around. We need to change it so God is the one doing the action. But if we do that, it makes no sense. God struggles. So I went and looked for myself to see what shra means. It turns out it has multiple meanings. To contend with and to struggle with are indeed meanings. And it can mean to persevere and to persist. But it also means to prevail as a prince would over his subjects. It's not just any old prevail. It's prevailing as a prince over his subjects. And that makes a whole lot more sense here. So let's change this. It doesn't mean God struggles. It means God prevails in any situation. But there's still a problem. It doesn't make sense that Jacob would struggle with God and overcome him. Perhaps it means Jacob has struggled with relying fully on God, but he's finally overcome his own darkness and has accepted God as God. That works. But I think there's another possibility. If you've been coloring the names of God, you'll notice that the word translated as big G God here is actually Elohim which can also be translated as little g, gods. And that makes a lot of sense in the context of the struggle with looking to idols that's been going on in Jacob's household. I really like this translation. Your name will not be Jacob the deceiver anymore. From now on, your name will be Israel. God prevails. For you have struggled with God's idols and with men and have overcome. As this momentous day in Jacob's life begins to dawn, God finally ends Jacob's struggles, both internal and external. He lightly touches Jacob's hip and throws it out of joint. But even in pain, Jacob refuses to let God go until God blesses him. That is like so typically Jacob, right? And he asks God his name, and God says, you know my name, and blesses him. Jacob names this place Penuel, which means face of God, because he says, I saw the face of God and lived. We think of this as Jacob seeing the face of God and escaping with his life. 
but I think it might actually be a restatement of God's blessing of Abraham. Do you remember what that was? God told Abraham to walk before me, which in Hebrew, the, that word literally means before my face and be made whole. Jacob has now spent the night before the face of God, and he has been made whole even while his body is made weak. He has come to that most precious of places, the place where we are weak so that God alone is our strength. Well, Esau and his army of fighting men are now within sight. Jacob prepares for the worst. And notice, he's still going by his old name of Jacob here in the story. So remember that as we, as we read on. Anyway, Jacob puts the maids and their children in the lead, and then Leah and her children, and lastly, Rachel and Joseph. And Jacob himself goes right in front. As he approaches Esau, Jacob falls to the ground and bows. He does this seven times. In this culture, bowing seven times is how someone would enter the presence of a king. Jacob is trying to signal complete submission as well as his acknowledgement of the superiority of Esau. Esau does not attack. Instead, he runs to meet Jacob, throws his arms around him, hugs him, and weeps. And Esau asks, what in the world were all those herds you sent ahead? Although certainly the servants have already told Esau they are gifts. Well, this is a clue to Jacob that Esau is opening negotiations. This is a typical Near Eastern way of approaching a negotiation. You start by presenting yourself as being vulnerable to the other person when in fact you are coming from a place of strength. We've seen this play out several times in negotiations already, where people speak with extreme hospitality, but it's a sort of veiled threat, kind of like a hammer in a velvet glove. And this is apparently how Jacob hears Esau's greeting, despite Esau's earlier tears. Jacob's first priority must be to get Esau to accept those herds as gifts. That would establish an obligation on Esau's part to at least not harm Jacob. It's hugely important. So you can imagine Jacob's relief when Esau finally acquiesces. But then Esau makes a parry. He suggests that he and his fighting men travel with Jacob. Sounds like a police escort, doesn't it? Well, Jacob thinks quickly and he says, oh, oh no, I have women and flocks and little kids with me. So I'm traveling at a snail's pace. I, I don't want to delay you. You go on ahead. I'll, I'll catch up with you at your home. So Esau says, well, at least let me leave some of my men with you. And Jacob says, oh, no, you're far too generous. I, I can't accept such a generous gesture. And Esau is forced to relent and let Jacob follow on his own. Esau and his fighting men turn back south. This is a satellite image of the land of Israel. And just to get you oriented, this here is the Sea of Galilee. And this bit down here is the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea, and right in between runs the Jordan River. Now, there are um, four different main roads uh, through this land, and Jacob is on what's called the King's Highway, and it runs right across this plateau, right, this flat part right up here. 
Haran is up that way. And Esau lives down here. And um, Jacob has gotten about right to here to a place called Gilead. Now there is, is another road and it runs right along the Jordan River down and it's called the Rift Valley Road. It's right down here. And when it hits the Sea of Galilee, it kind of veers off to the, le to the left, to the west. There's another road, and it's called the Road of the Patriarchs, and it runs along this spine of this mountain range over here on the west. So that kind of makes sense, right? You wouldn't want to be going up and down these mountains, so you're going to either run along the King's Highway, along this Transjordan Plateau, um, or you're going to run along the spine of the mountains on the west of the Jordan, which is this dotted line that I've called the, the Road of the Patriarchs. And it continues on down, kind of gets down off the mountains, and it joins up here west of Galilee, and it also goes off north and west. There's one more road, and that runs along this coastal highway right down here where it's flat. Uh, the problem with this road is that you get about right to there and you run into this great big mountain that's sticking out. That's Mount Carmel. And there's no place for you to go any further unless you climb the mountain back up and you go through this little mountain pass right over here. At the top of that pass is a big fort called Megiddo. Uh, so you have to be friends with whoever has control of Megiddo. But if you are and you can get through the pass, then you can come down the other side of the mountain and end up in this big valley here, the Jezreel Valley, which is gorgeous. It's really pretty. And so you just hop right on across that valley and join up with the other three roads, the Rift Valley Road, the Road of the Patriarchs, and continue on north and west. The only road that actually runs north and east is this King's Highway over to the east of the Jordan, which is... And, that's, and it's the road that runs up to Haran. So Haran goes up that away. Sorry for the clicking. And uh, jo uh, Jacob is right now, he's here at Gilead. Well, the problem is he has no intention of uh, following Esau home. He's, he wants to get away from Esau. So his only option really is to climb down this mountain, down this way, with all his family, all his possessions, and all his herds. So before he gets down to the Jordan Valley, Jacob decides to stop. He's at a place called Succoth, a word meaning sheds or booths. It's a place like we'd understand if someone told us they stopped overnight in a cabin at a KOA campground we'd understand that it was temporary. That word, Sukkot, will become significant to the Israelites. In the future, for the Israelites, this word will come to mean a place of transition, the first place they can rest after coming from a dangerous situation. And Jacob rests here at Sukkot. But he's not nearly far enough away from Esau, so he picks up and moves on. Let's catch up with him again as he climbs down into the Jordan River Valley. Uh, the Dead Sea is actually the lowest place on earth right down here. It is at negative 1,350 feet. It's 1,350 feet below sea level. 
So if he's starting at 2,500 feet and he's heading down um, to 1,300 below sea level, he's got a, a net change of like 3,500 feet. So that's a lot to drag all your whole household down. And once he gets down there, he there's not really any place to go. If he goes south, he's going to end up at the Dead Sea. He goes north, he's going to end up at, in Galilee. And he really, what he's really trying to get to is right around down here um, near where Jerusalem is. He's, 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 he wants to get down here to Bethel, which is down this way. Okay, that's that's where he started his journey, and that's where he wants to get to. He's 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 not that far as far as the crow flies, but he's already drugged his family down to the to the um, Jordan River Valley, and now he's got to climb back up in order to get onto that road of the patriarchs that runs uh, along the spine of the mountains. And of course, it's nearly as high of an ascent. It's like twenty seven hundred feet to get up there back up to to the road of the patriarchs and he's you know does a little jog and he gets about to here and and he's whooped he's done he's at the town of Shechem and he just doesn't want to go any further close enough as far as he's concerned he's far enough away from Esau that he feels protected because for sure Esau's not going to do all that mountain climbing to get back to him so he figures he's safe enough and he decides to settle there in Shechem Jacob buys a plot of land from the family of Hamor, the ruler of Shechem. And there Jacob builds an altar and names it El Elohai Israel, which means my God, God of Israel. Now notice he's not naming God as the God of Jacob. He doesn't say my God, God of Jacob. He says my God, God of Israel, even though he continues to be called Jacob in the story. In the future, for the Israelites, Shechem will come to be associated with making a choice. It's partly because it's on a crossroads, the north-south road of the patriarchs, and an east-west road, but also because it's in a valley between two big mountains, Mount Ebal on the north and Mount Kerasim on the south. To move in any direction requires a commitment. Jacob does neither. He stays put but events are about to spiral out of control. Jacob, as you know, has a daughter named Dina, and she is like any other young teenage girl. She's just beginning to feel her own power. I love Alter's translation here at the beginning of chapter 34. He objects strenuously to the translations that say she went visiting. He says this was nothing like going out for tea. He says the Hebrew here should be translated, she went out to go seeing among the daughters of the land. I totally get that. Have you ever seen a gaggle of 15-year-old girls out in public? They seem to be giggling and talking loudly with each other, but it's totally obvious that the goal is not only to scope out the boys in the vicinity, but to be seen by them, right? When it says she goes seeing with the other girls of Shechem, you can bet they're out to see and be seen. Well, she does catch an eye, the eye of the prince of the city. And of course she's flattered. And of course the other girls push her towards him. Things get intense quickly. The prince, whose name is Shechem, falls in love with Dina. And as things do 
with teens, they get quickly out of hand. Shechem ends up taking Dina home to his father's house and raping her. He immediately petitions his father Hamor to plead his case with Jacob. So Prince Shechem and Hamor go to ask for Dina's hand in marriage. Dina is left back at Hamor's house. It doesn't say whether she's held there against her will or not. When Dina's brothers hear what has been done to her, they are incensed. This is a huge insult to Jacob and to the entire family. Hamor is as persuasive as he can be, offering to pay whatever price Jacob might set. But Jacob never gets a word in edgewise. Dina's brothers have no intention of any such agreement. They've already made up their minds to take full revenge. Hamor suggests that the people of Shechem and the household of Jacob allow their sons and daughters to intermarry. The brothers tell Hamor that Dina and the other women of the household would never marry uncircumcised men. So in order for Shechem to marry Dina, he, Hamor, and all the fighting men of the city will have to be circumcised. Hamor and Prince Shechem agree to these terms. Prince Shechem loses no time at all getting circumcised, for he truly is in love with Dina. Hamor, though, has to go sell the deal to the men of the city, and the only way he's able to do it is to convince them that if they do this, the result of the intermarriages will be that all of Jacob's possessions will end up adding to the wealth of the men of Shechem through marriage, attrition, and perhaps by force, although it doesn't say that in so many words. The men can see the advantages, so all the men of the city get circumcised on the same day. Ouch. Three days later, when Dina's brothers, Simeon and Levi, know the men will be at the peak of their pain, they attack the town. The men of Shechem are slaughtered, and it says Simeon and Levi take all their livestock and all their wealth and all the women and children. Now that's quite a feat for only two men. So we're either getting an exaggerated version or we're not getting the whole story. In any case, the point we're clearly meant to understand is how devastating the attack is. Jacob is horrified when he finds out. He knows that as soon as they're able, the men of the entire surrounding country will attack him. It would be hard to overstate how angry Jacob is at Simeon and Levi. It doesn't come across here. But if we skip forward to Jacob's deathbed, where he, quote, blesses Simeon and Levi, we can see what the impact really was. I put a new table listing the 12 tribes of Israel in the reference section of your study guide, and this is an excerpt from that. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed by their anger, so fierce, and their fury, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. You see, by their actions, Jacob is now forced to flee Shechem. He's been on the run for more than 20 years already, and he finally put down roots here in Shechem, and now he's on the run again, and at the worst possible time, because Rachel is finally pregnant again, and he's surely worried for her safety, but God is with him. In a dream, God tells him, 
go to Bethel and make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from Esau. And Jacob remembers the promise he made to God all those years ago. If you will be with me and will watch over me on this journey so that I return safely to my father's household, then you will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be your house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Jacob remembers he's never done this, even though God has been faithful to save him. If he'd done this in the first place, I wonder if Dina would have ever been raped or if Simeon and Levi would have ever disgraced themselves. We'll never know. But the most interesting part here is that in remembering his vow, Jacob realizes that not only he, but all his household must put away their idols and worship God alone. So he cleanses the household of idols and all the jewelry worn in honor of idols or as a sign of protection by the idols. No more would idols be revered in Jacob's household. It doesn't say, but I wonder if Rachel hides her idols again. In any case, Jacob buries the idols and the jewelry at Shechem, the place of choosing, and he moves on to Bethel. And none of the men of the surrounding area pursue them because the terror of God falls upon them. So interesting that it's put this way after Jacob had named God the terror of Isaac not so very long ago. And when Jacob arrives in Bethel, he did finally build that altar to God, having finally come full circle. And now that Jacob has fulfilled his vow to God, God again appears to Jacob and repeats his declaration. Your name is Jacob, but you shall no longer be called the deceiver. You will be called God prevails. I name you Israel. I am El Shaddai. Remember what that name means. It's the name of the God of the breasts that have given all. It's the name of the God from whom all good gifts come. The name of the God who blesses and multiplies. I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. Nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. I give to you and to your seed the land I gave Abraham and Isaac. Jacob and his household do not remain in Bethel, however. He wants to continue home to his father Isaac. But not long after leaving Bethel, Rachel goes into labor. As they near Bethlehem, her labor becomes extremely difficult, and she finally gives birth. The midwife tells her to have courage, for she's had the second son she's wanted so desperately. Rachel, however, is spent. As she dies, she names the boy, but Jacob, in an unusual mood, changes his name to Benjamin, meaning son of my right hand or son of my old age. And it says that Jacob buried Rachel in Bethlehem and Israel traveled on. Do you remember how, Jacob, how Rachel clung to those idols? It's not until after her death that Jacob is ever actually called Israel in the story. It's only after he lays her to rest that he's able to fully step into who he is called to be. From this point on, the story will switch back and forth between calling him Israel and calling him Jacob. Eventually, Jacob goes to his father's home near the tree of Mamre 
and sees his father Isaac before he dies. It says Jacob and Esau bury Isaac together. I have lots of questions about that. It had to have been a tense time, as this was when Jacob would have inherited everything. But the story gives us no details. I'd love to end the story here, but there's another couple of footnotes that are important. One is that Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, sleeps with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Now she's old enough to be his mother, so this should be understood as a brazen act of usurping his father's power. That's how such a move would be interpreted in this culture. Reuben is a threat. He has no respect for his father whatsoever, and he demonstrates it quite graphically. Jacob later remembers this on his deathbed as well. When Reuben comes forward for his blessing, Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. And later in the Bible, in 1 Chronicles 5, it says that when Reuben defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were forfeited to the sons of his brother Joseph. So Reuben would not be considered the firstborn anymore. We'll end with chapter 36, which lists the descendants of Esau. This is a way of marking Esau's exit from the story. He settles, as you know, in the southeast in the land of Seir, which, like the name Esau, means hair. It's also a land called Edom, which means red. And it's a land of red dirt. There's a statement in the chapter that Esau and Jacob part ways because the land cannot support both their households. That doesn't exactly track with the details of the story we just read, but it might be a literary allusion to the splitting up of Abraham and Lot, another place where paths diverge and we end up following only one line of the family. Okay, it's time for our breakout sessions. Trigger warning, though. We'll be talking about the rape of Dina. According to the CDC, one in every five women in America has been subject to rape or attempted rape. One in seven men have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner. So please be sensitive during this discussion to the high likelihood that one or more of the people in your group have personally experienced sexual violence, sometimes repeatedly during their lives. <clears throat> if you don't wanna participate, just stay here and chat with me while the breakout groups are in session. Also, you can go into the breakout and change your mind at any time. Just click the button to return here to the main classroom. No explanation is needed. That looks like most, most folks. Um, We're missing one person, but I don't know. Oh, there she is. Okay, good. All right. We're all back. So um, tell me, tell me what, let's kind of start at the, at the top. What, what, um, cultural overlays of sexism did you see in this story? Well, the most obvious is what we've talked about in the past, that women were so devalued um, and considered as almost as property. Yeah. We, we no, discussed that. We said one of the things that's focused on is they don't focus on Dina or any of her 
situation, not much is discussed at all, but they focus on the brothers being insulted and their retaliation, you know, and how the brothers felt because it was an affront to them. That, that is so typical, right, of these kind of situations where, you know, even if you bring it forward, um, it's like all about the other person. It's not about the person who it actually happened to. It kind of reminds me of, of families wanting to, to sweep it under the rug, like it didn't happen because if we say so, it will embarrass the family. Well, and there's also, I mean, in different cultures, there's honor killing, where if you, you know, if you dishonor this family, then you will get killed by that family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we talked about, about that also, that, that really the brothers, the reference in the story is not that the brothers were so outraged at the harm that was done to their sister. They were outraged at the harm that was done to the family's honor. And they wreaked revenge because the family had been insulted by this assault. And even the whole thing about marriage and about this, this guy feeling entitled that if he loved her, loved her, he was entitled to take her whether she consented or not. Um, the woman is completely powerless in this story. She has no agency. She was not consulted, as far as we know, as to whether she wanted this kind of revenge wreaked upon this man. She's completely discounted. She mm -hmm. was just the vehicle through which the family was insulted and therefore her brothers mm -hmm. wreaked revenge. One thing we discussed with um, respect to Dina was um, that when she went out to meet the other women, she didn't have anybody with her, but it's possible that her community, that was not something that happened. So, and I use this analogy that when she walks by the construction site, she feels safe, you know, whereas this other community apparently their values were very different and she wasn't safe and she didn't know that she needed to she may not have known that she needed protection because she was simply going to meet the other women and to make friends right do you think that that was an early form of a victim shaming victim blaming that it's your fault because you went alone in front of these men you know Absolutely. just like even now yes because in the context she wasn't just going to meet those women she was going to flirt with guys with those women but just because she was flirting doesn't give him the right to rape her so. right right mm -hmm. okay so so how how might a story like this, and like many of the others we've read so far, I just picked this one because it was like off the cliff, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> how would a woman or a man, how would someone who has experienced this sort of thing feel 
reading this in the Bible. Well, I already told a couple the people I was in my breakout group, my dad was very abusive. And he was not a good father. And so whenever I read in the Bible, God the Father, I automatically, it's hard. It's really hard because I don't trust my, I didn't trust my own father. How can I trust somebody else that's going to take the name of father? Um, so it's, it's really, so I would imagine that, you know, other women probably are the, feel the same way I do, that how do you learn to trust somebody when you had bad examples? Right. Nay, I had a similar situation in my life and my father was atrocious, but what I learned from a young age was to compartmentalize so I don't trigger to God the Father because there were three years in my life when my father was sober and they were awesome years, but when he drank, they were not. And so, but what that taught me and I shared with our group was I didn't know how to pick a mate. So my first mate that I picked was extremely abusive. Yeah, and I left him because I worried that he would hurt my children. And his mother and sister helped me to escape and to find a life. And I went into hiding in Corpus Christi and I still keep in touch with the people there. And then when I married my second time, I thought I had it better, but he didn't hurt my children, but he hurt me mentally and physically. And it took me another 10 years to figure out and, and some bad things that I just couldn't accept. And then finally, 20 years ago, I married a good person and he takes care of me and he's kind to me. These were things I could not fathom mm -hmm. because I had no basis of comparison. The only time I ever saw a relationship that was positive was on TV. And to me, that wasn't real. It was just like the fake blood. It wasn't real. I didn't see a cohesive, kind family unit. And so I didn't know, I just knew I wanted something different. And, but and so in the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm finished, I'm sorry. Okay, no, I, I was just saying in the context of reading um, uh, then a story in the Bible um, over and over really, stories where women are uh, treated as having little or no worth where they're ghosted you know um like like renee said you know it it caused um her to to struggle with how can i trust god is this you know i can't relate to god you know um i think i think it would be a a a, a bit of a feeling of betrayal. Now, I cannot speak to it myself, but I'm trying to put myself into that position. And if I were reading this and thinking, wow, how can that possibly be? You know, that's, that's terrible. Uh, you know, and that, that's not the kind of thing that I would, that I want to be 
thinking about, you know, that this should be, because they don't treat it as being wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that would be a betrayal to me. Yes. And, and it's kind of like when we, when we read the Bible, I think that we are intended to see ourselves in the story. The, the, the writers are wanting us to see ourselves in the story. They're trying to communicate these basic human, um, that's why they put all the flaws in there, right? That's why they don't polish these characters up is, is, is because these are real people and the, and the whole point is that our God is real and God knows what we're like. But what if the person, I think the writers of the Bible kind of assumed that they were, since they were men, they were writing to men. The Bible wasn't written to the women. And, and so I'm thinking that um, somehow there's got to be a disconnect because although the message that, the, that these ancient writers were sending, it might be captured and caught by a man, what, what is a woman catching from these, you know, from these stories? We discussed in our group that um, that's the reason we need to be conscious and compassionate when we're um, talking with others in a Bible study and you come across a story such as that, that um, we need to validate that person. We need to say it's okay to feel that way. You have um, a right to feel that way. You have a reason to feel that way. Um, but just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it was condoned or that it was right. And you the may, not, is you may there. not be able to identify who that person in the group is. That person who feels that threat from the story may not say anything. Right. May just right. sit there and think, holy shit, I cannot deal with this. Maybe I won't come back next week. But if we do that as an assumption to say, this is in the Bible because it was written by men for men, and this is how women were valued, and it's not that way anymore. And we don't feel that way anymore. We yes. don't feel yes. that women should be devalued and all that. Yes, very yeah. good. Although, on the other hand, this kind of attitude persists today, especially in mm -hmm. a lot of churches, where women oh, are oh. still... Yeah. Oh, sure. Devalued, but, and women are still abused, and women are still taken advantage of by men in authority over them. And so, in some ways, nothing has changed. You know, maybe the laws have changed, and there are definitely enlightened men in the world, but this attitude still persists in pockets of American society and in the church. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, too, I think, too, that, I mean, as... Um, when Gail gave us our, our statistics, you know, and she said that one in seven men have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner. I mean, I think we have to remember that too. Uh, that, and um, when you think of, say, think of boys who have been abused, um, you know, whether it's sexually or physically, but I mean, think about what's going on in the Catholic church and what we're finding out about that. And it's been condoned because it was part of the church. And so, I mean, and nothing against anybody in here who's Catholic or former Catholic or anything like that, because I have really good friends that are both. But I mean, it, that abuse happens within the church, as Marlene said, you know, it's still, it's still there. 
Not just the anyway, Catholic Church either. Right. It's also, I mean, it's just the human thing, and right now the Catholics are getting caught. Exactly. Yes, but it happens. It happens in Protestant churches too, you know, with or like in in scout troops and those kinds of things. So, um, so let children. Me, let me throw something out here, and that is, since we have identified that, not only is this story conveying subliminally a message to the to the victim it's uh, or about the victim it's it's communicating that message to people who are currently victims um and they may actually be victims within the context of where the bible study is happening within a church environment within a community you know, or within a family where those who are in authority are supposed to be using God. God is the pattern that we're supposed to be following. And we're kind of hardwired to believe that, you know, that's why these people can hurt us so badly is because we're hardwired to understand God through how they treat us, you know, within those contexts. So, when we are in a situation, what things can we do or say or be aware of? What, what is our strategy um, for, for recognizing, for, quote, seeing people who are in the situation with us? Who might be victims or know who might be perpetrators I know in my situation when I went and lived with strangers it changed my life and then later when I was on my own I had a friend in the same exact situation and I took her into my home with her children and gave her a safe place and helped her in many ways. And we hid her from her husband and we put action be behind our words. She stayed with us for months and months. I think that putting action behind the words is very important. It doesn't have to be in your home, but putting action behind the words when you know someone has been, um, when someone has been uh, victimized, it's very important that you reach out and that you help, you know, in whatever way they let you help. Um, but I, where I'm trying, what I want to do is, try to point out that these two lessons we've just had have built on each other. One of them talked about, uh, it was either the, this last one or the one before where I gave you a chart and it had three columns. And I said, well, strip out the cultural part from the real message part, right? And I said something about wanting to get you to begin to approach the, 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 the Bible like that. And this lesson today is that exact sort of thing, but it's much more potent 
and it's much more deadly. And, um, and, and so I think what I'm, I'm trying to get us to is that we need to always be aware of what kind of a document we're dealing with here. And that whenever we're talking about it, whenever we're teaching it and whenever we're sharing it and whenever we're listening to someone else teach it, that we have an obligation to remember to begin to parse not only the cultural things out and to try to contribute that to the conversation, but also begin to parse out these subliminal messages of worthlessness that are directed towards um, women and others, you know, um, and that we have a responsibility to do the preparation when we're reading these stories to think like that, to think about who is silenced in this story. So that is the tool I want to put in your backpack today, mm. is to remember to always ask, who is silenced in this story? And who might be being silenced today? And we're way over time. I, I knew we were going to run over today. Um, and so I am still here and we can continue to talk, but I just want to acknowledge that that class time is, is done. And so feel free to drop off. You can always drop off anytime. So it's really, it's really, you know, hard to think about all of the women that I know, including women in my extended family who have been victims of spiritual, emotional, or sexual abuse. That, um, that it seems to continue to run rampant and that even to, I mean, just, you know, Trump referring to Kamala Harris as a nasty woman in his very first comments about her. I mean, that level of, of erasure of the value of women is still so prevalent in so many parts of our society. Um, and it's so sad to read a story that happened thousands of years ago and realize that we haven't really evolved all that much in all this time. And that in many parts of the country, even today, that women have no say, no, no agency in whom they're married off to or being victimized in this way. Um, you know, and that it's relatively recently that even in America, women were not being blamed in court for having asked for it. Right. But I just I get think that from the media a lot of times or other people, you know, on social media. It, it's always, you know, well, she shouldn't have been there. She shouldn't right. have been doing that. How do we know she's telling the truth? You shouldn't know, have, was, she, should, she shouldn't have been dressed like that. You know, all those things. I was... Yeah. I was called for um, 
wasn't what I was, you know, summoned for jury duty once. And of course, you know, when you go, they don't tell you exactly what happened until after you've been chosen. And so they were going through and interviewing them, interviewing us. And I just gathered by what was going on, you know, and what things, but that by the questions that the attorneys were asking and things like that, that this was basically a, a, a rape case or a molestation case. And, and that, and I just, I don't even remember the question that I was asked. I just said, you know what? The person, if, if that sort of thing ever happens, that person is an adult and that other person was a child. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether the child supposedly asked for it or not. The adult had the responsibility not to do it. And I feel the same way, you know, between two adults even, you know, and, um, when you say no, you say no. And I just want to express to those of you who have been so open and so frank that I really appreciate that. But I just, you know, I, I, it, it hurts my heart. Um, I wish that we human beings could not be so cruel to each other in any situation, but because it's just, as Marlene said, it's rampant everywhere. So mm -hmm. I have to go. Thank you very much. Hope to All see right. you next week. If, if we have reception, I'll see you next week. Okay, <laughs> so enjoy There was a case maybe six or eight years ago um, that what became very um, hot in the news. Um, some Toronto policeman told some woman that, you know, she got raped because of, of she was wearing such a short skirt or something. And, and yeah, she asked for it. And this blew up. And so they had a huge slut walk in Toronto and to claim, no, it does not matter what I'm wearing. It's not my fault if some man has no control or choose to overpower me. And so this is where it gets crazy. I walked in the slut walk Chicago. And it was the very first slut walk. And I had a young friend that was going and I that she put it on post social media that she was going on. I'm like, oh, Katie, what are you getting yourself into? And then I read about it and I thought, I'll go with you. And mm -hmm. I made a sign, you know, don't blame the victim. You know, if I was 17 and the guy was 33, don't blame the victim. And mm -hmm. so it was, it was very empowering to walk in that. And there were a lot of women who were over the top in my book, but you know, they're, this is my body and no, it doesn't matter what I look like or what I'm wearing. It's not my fault if somebody can't control themselves or choose. Absolutely. And, and, and young women are so frequently conditioned mm -hmm. to accept that it must be their fault. My own niece was sexually assaulted her freshman year of college and she is just now getting therapy. She's, um, she's 21 now she was 18 when it happened and she is just now getting to the point where she is not blaming herself because she had had some wine before she went to this party and she was wearing a friend's dress that was a little more revealing than something she would have worn and this guy assaulted her and she was blaming herself well maybe if i hadn't had something to drink you know i was underage i shouldn't have been drinking maybe if i wasn't wearing that dress uh, you know and no it wasn't her fault and, and I, I remember reading an article a few years ago about certain churches where um, if there is a situation of sexual assault, that the woman is required to forgive her rapist. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. 
and that the men go through, you know, the boys like, like when the whole big scandal broke out about the Duggars, you know, the older Duggar boy and, and what he had done to his younger sisters. And um, the therapy that he went through, I remember reading an article by someone who had grown up in the independent fundamentalist Baptist church and had been a victim of sexual abuse. And she knew people who had gone through this same program. And basically the men were asked to write down what they thought triggered their desire to be abusive. And they mm -hmm. wrote down things like, well, my little sisters were constantly running around without their diapers in front of me. And that was considered an acceptable excuse for them to molest their young sisters. No. And if that's the culture that you're being mm -hmm. taught, that it's always the woman's fault and the man, you know, and, and how many churches, when they talk about sex in high school groups, do they tell the girls to not be a temptation to their brothers in Christ. Yeah, that, you know, boys are completely absolved of guilt because if the girl wore a dress that was too short or show, oh, there's a little too low cut, well, then the poor guy had no control over himself. And it's obviously the case. Oh, hey, don't show those shoulders either, you know? Those shoulders mm -hmm. are sexy. The other, the other thing that I think um, is important to remember is, is um, that we can tell girls all the time. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Um, but it's not going to help them in the situation unless we've also prepared them with tools to equip them to deal with the situation. We need to be teaching both sexes how to extract themselves from bad situations, if possible. And if they can't, what to do to minimize the damage and afterwards what steps they need to take they need to not be having to figure that out in the wake of a trauma yes you know here well, in washington I'm, state we're having a big a big discussion right now over uh, comprehensive sexual health education in the public schools it just became law a few months ago and of course the evangelicals freaked and got it put on the ballot for november as a referendum whether the the voting public wants that to happen or not. And they're telling all sorts of lies about what's going to be in the curriculum. But in the early elementary years, what is being taught is setting healthy boundaries and how to, to understand that you have autonomy in situations where someone might be trying to get you to do something you don't want to do and to teaching them what does a healthy relationship look like how do you have good healthy friendships you know it's all those things like you were talking about gail helping to prepare the groundwork for children to understand that it wasn't their fault and that they have agency um but even if something happens to them that it wasn't their fault um and and even that is is um the the there are people who don't want that talked about. I get mad at school dress codes. When my daughter gets sent home because her spaghetti, her straps are too, sh you know, narrow or the skirts are too short. It's like, no, if they're sold that way to proper clothing and she can wear it if she wants to. Um, it's just, it's just playing into the, it's giving guys more ammunition that they can't control themselves. They don't have to control themselves. And that's the one thing I think needs to be taught more than, you know, 
safety for girls is that guys are responsible for their actions. If they're gonna lust after somebody or do something, they need to take responsibility and be held accountable. Right. And that boys need to be taught that for themselves also. Yes. My son was raped as a gay man in high, in, twice in college. And um, he, he said, I, I couldn't, he couldn't tell us till five years later because he thought we would blame him for having been at a party where he was drinking. Therefore, it was his fault. And he thought we would blame him. And I will admit the first thing that went through my mind was, oh, why did you have to go drinking? And fortunately, I held my tongue. But, you know, it, it just shocked me how quickly I went there because I'm so conditioned to blame the victim. Yeah. And it's, it was, and I just really had a mental battle not to blame her for putting herself in a compromising situation. Well, well, now she's my trans daughter, so it's, you know, it's all more complicated, but it's, yeah. it's you know, it's just, you know, and then she got married to an abusive man. So while, I mean, it was a gay, two gay men at the time, but that he was psychologically and emotionally abusive. He didn't physically hurt my son's flesh daughter, but it was, you know, just really devastatingly abusive. And so finally my son got out of that, but had to come to a place to say, I did not deserve that. It was really hard work. It's still working on it. I do not deserve that kind of treatment. And I'm still working on it for myself i don't deserve the kind of treatment i'm getting from whoever yes and i think that that one of the reasons that this is so devastating to us is that sex and marriage are intended in my humble opinion are intended to be a parable for us to understand the closeness of the Trinity and how much God loves us. And that it absolutely is a way for us to understand what it means to be completely bound up with and part of another person in exactly the way God wants to be bound up with and part of us. And so we have been built with that very vulnerable place that affects our very identity. It's not just a physical thing. And it's not just a human relationship thing. It's something that is supposed to be linked to how we understand God. And so it is linked to how we understand God. And so we, it, it is not a lot of help to, to speak it and to identify it and to, and to call it out, but it is some help, you know? And I believe that, that God can redeem and transform anything. And God can redeem and transform this kind of identity destruction. If we're leading a Bible study with people or we're in a situation where somebody comes to us with 
saying, I read this and I was triggered because, or whatever. How, okay, these are two different questions, so split that. If we're leading a Bible study or teaching or something and we're teaching a, a subject like this, a story like this, um, how do you suggest we make it How do we approach it to, to make it not um, harmful for them? I think that I don't have all the answers, but um, I think that um, one thing is to not rush through the story. It would have been very easy to just tell the story of Dina and go on, blow right past it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that one thing that's important is that as you're preparing for your lesson as a teacher that you be asking yourself those questions that I've put in your toolbox so that you recognize when you've got a story that has the power to severely hurt somebody or to open a hurt place and that you allow sufficient number one you allow sufficient time for it and number two you allow that you warn people about it so they can avoid the lesson if they want to entirely and number three, that you give them an option to gracefully withdraw from, from the lesson if they want to. Um, other than that, it's a matter of when you spend the time with them, make sure that they understand that you see them. Even if you're not speaking to a particular person, you don't know who it is out there. Do you know there's somebody out there who needs to be seen? Yeah. And unfortunately, I think in our Christian congregations, it's a lot more than people think it would be. Yes. And, Which makes and, the need that much greater for people like us to do this kind of thing. And they're, they're so many times pastors, um, pastors victim blame. Pastors say, well, there must be something wrong with you if he's doing this, so you need to fix this. And I mean... You know, my marriage has been up and down. We celebrated our 31st anniversary yesterday and had a wonderful Today's our 33rd. Oh, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, yes, ladies. And um, um, I got a really great anniversary present in that we were able to talk at dinner last night and Ed um, acknowledged that he needs to do better about using male pronouns for Ben. That's such a wonderful thing. Oh man, and how precious is that, say, right? He actually did use male pronouns in the in our conversation, so I'm like, I'll take it. Good. Yeah. But for years, like 20 years ago, when we had six kids under the age of 10, <laughs> and it was there were some bad bad times, and I took every marriage class our every marriage bible study you know everything that our church offered i was sitting there taking it and some of the advice i got from those classes actually made our marriage worse and i was finally able to realize that and switch it around some of it some of the advice that i took actually damaged my relationship with some of my kids because like one of the classes said you know what your kids are with you for 18 years your husband's with you for life he's more important than your kids is basically what the class taught 
do not take your husband me do not take your kid's side against your husband your husband is always you take your husband's and you know what it really screwed up some things yep and when i finally realized what was going on and you know got away from that and you know said no he's not right and he needs to know he's not right and so you know we've had ups and downs but um it's all in all, you know, we're doing okay. But better than a lot. And, you know, there's no physical abuse or anything like that. Um, but so many times, I mean, I have a friend who was in an abusive relationship, a marriage that was so bad that he watched pornography and then forced her to act out things that were in the pornography. And in the course of one of these scenarios he broke her arm and the pastor told her she shouldn't divorce him because marriage was forever and i'm like that's wrong if you're married to a man who is breaking your limbs you need to not be in that relationship and i so many times our, our churches just miss it they just miss it yeah well, and it's per, it's predominant a lot of times when a natural disaster happens. I've heard people say, well, if the town was a better town or if the people deserve, you know, is God punishing people? Oh my God. And it's like, how does that even compute? Yeah. I don't understand it. But didn't Jerry Falwell or somebody say that Katrina was a judgment against Louisiana of some sort? Yeah. I mean, somebody it, did. It, Lots of people it, did. Yeah. Still. And that, I think, comes from a very flawed understanding of the Bible. And that has led people to a flawed understanding of who God is and how God relates to us. And that's, you know, really, Liz and I were talking about this. This is, this is one of the things that this Bible study is for, is to try to really address um, those ways that we are approaching scripture poorly and it results in a poor understanding of God and trying to reframe and redirect and, and, and give you guys the tools that you need to, to, to go another way and to help other people go another way, away Thank from you. that kind of abusive, destructive use of scripture and understanding of God as abusive and destructive. So.